Well, let me uh, invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures, but I think most of them are going to be up on the screen uh, for you. Hope so. Um, but uh, our text that we're going to be reading from is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand together with me as we read this text before we get into the preaching of the word. Beginning with verse 13, the word says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the glorious gospel and the word of God which comforts our hearts, instructs our minds, shows us the way that we need to walk, encourages us in the way, and gives us hope forever. We pray, Father, as we consider some of these things from this text this morning, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be overwhelmed by your glory, that we would recognize that we are treading on holy ground, that you are awesome and mighty, and that nothing can stay your hand that you will do according to all that you plan and that we will be blessed by it. So help us today as we think these thoughts, help us to be clear, help us to, uh, to be humble and help us to glory in your greatness and we will thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and for his sake alone, amen. So this morning... I have a particular intent in mind, uh, a specific message I want to offer to Pacific Hope Church today. There's so much interesting and challenging and debatable material in this passage. If we were to carefully and exegetically, uh, we're, we're working through this, the book of Matthew, uh, or even this chapter, we would have to spend a bit of time unpacking this section. Well, this morning we aren't doing that. Um, and we don't have the time to discuss all of the unclear statements we find here. Although a little bit of context is necessary. And some will be exposed in the body of my comments. But I think the gist of what our Lord is saying to his disciples and thus to us is pretty clear. I appreciate Bishop J.C. Ryle's thoughts. He says, there are words in this passage which have led to painful differences and divisions among Christians. Men have striven and contended about their meaning till they have lost sight of all charity and have failed to carry conviction to one another's minds. Let it suffice us to glance briefly at the controversial words and then pass on to more practical lessons. Well, I want to humbly offer this apologetic explanation, if I may, that 
It is not that I'm trying to weasel out of confronting potentially difficult ideas presented in the context. It is simply that, one, they are not pertinent to an understanding of our primary purpose in this message. And two, I really don't think this congregation uh, needs the theological and academic explanation to appreciate the meaning of the text this morning. So with that apology, our focus will be on verse 18, specifically the words of our Lord, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. From these words, I want to consider just a few things. First, there are two certainties expressed here, one directly stated, the other implied. And uh, we will look at what they are. Secondly, I want to observe how these certainties work themselves out. And then third, just to consider what does this mean for us today? So let's consider the two certainties. The first certainty, I will build my church. Christ will, with certainty, build his church. Now, this does refer to the church in the universal sense. That is, the gathering of all the saints from the past, present, and future. But let me borrow from J.C. Ryle once more and his description of this universal church. He says, The church which Jesus promises to build upon a rock is the blessed company of all faithful people. It is not the visible church of any one nation or country or place. It is the whole body of believers of every age and tongue and people. It is the church composed of all who are washed in Christ's blood, clothed in Christ's righteousness, renewed by Christ's spirit, joined to Christ by faith, and epistles of Christ in life. It is a church of which every member is baptized with the Holy Ghost and is really and truly holy. It is a church which is one body. All who belong to it are of one heart and one mind, hold the same truths and believe the same doctrines as necessary to salvation. It is the church which has only one head. That head is Jesus Christ himself. He is the head of the body. End quote. Now, as long as we're clear about that, I think it is quite reasonable and safe to say that the universal church has its expression in the local gathering of saved believers. That is, the visible manifestation of the universal church, which is the local church. So we can surely apply this to Christ's establishment, development, and dynamic prospering of local assemblies of believers called churches, so long as they are biblically sound and true churches. We are going to address those seasons of testing and difficulty and apparent defeat for both the universal and local church. And we must be aware of and alert to the fact that it is possible for local churches to apostatize. But for those gatherings of saints that hold fast to the true biblical faith, and such, I trust, is true of Pacific Hope Church, there is great reason for hope and encouragement. And that is what I want to focus on this morning. Our Lord says, I will build my church. Now, why did he have to make such a statement? Well, because we know the earth at large is the enemy's territory. The earth and the earth system is under the dominion of the evil one, Satan himself. It is not rightfully Satan's. He didn't create it. He will not ultimately rule over it. But Satan has captured 
and now reigns as the God of this world and has blinded the minds of men, according to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, which says, And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And because of sin, all men born into this world become the willing servants of the powers of darkness, whether they know it or not. Many are even self-called Christians, but their creed is humanistic psychology. And they are motivated by material greed. Their ultimate goal is personal peace and prosperity. They are driven by the pursuit of pleasure. They are slaves to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Indeed, an alarmingly increasing number of people in our culture are now caught up in the so-called third great awakening, which is a, simply a false gospel of self-help and self-fulfillment. But they know nothing of sin, repentance, and calling out to Jesus Christ for salvation. They do not have to do with God. They are unwitting servants of the powers of darkness. All of us, have been there, and perhaps some of us still are. And it is into this world system, this cosmos, that our Lord came to reclaim for himself. He invaded, if you will, and declared, I will build my church. And he most certainly will. Consider three observations about this certainty. First of all, it is his church. The language makes a slight but significant emphasis on the pronoun. Notice it says in verse 18, I will build my church. He didn't say, I will build a church. He didn't say, I will build the church. He said, I will build my church. It could be rendered, I will build for myself a church. It is his church. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, kind of a lengthy passage, but let's read through it together. For this reason, Paul writes, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not see cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is his church. Ephesians 4, later in the, my understanding is, by the way, the elders have determined that future sermons now going forward are going to be from the book of Ephesians. Oh boy, <laughs> you're in for a treat. Uh, Anyway, sorry, uh, Ephesians 4, verses 11, 12, and then verse 15 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. It is his church. Paul also writes in Colossians 1, 18, speaking of Christ, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The church is referred to as a body, and Christ is the head. It is his church, and he is the one who builds it. Christ himself, it is he who saves and keeps his people. It is Christ himself who forms local churches. It is Christ himself who gives gifts to the churches, who gives corporate growth and sanctification, who places body members where they can and must serve and when they are to serve and when they are to cease. Any church that is built not by Christ, but by another is not a true church. And we want nothing to do with that false church. Second observation of the certainty that Christ will build his church is that all authority is his. He and he alone has the authority to build his church. In John 17, verses 1 and 2, we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Of course, at the end of our Lord's earthly ministry, after the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, he reminded his disciples as he was giving his great commission in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It is his church. And because of his absolute authority over all things, he has the authority to build his church. And so our third observation is that nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him. He not only has the authority to build his church, he has the power to build his church. He will build his church. Nothing can stop him. You see, we don't have the picture of two evenly matched combatants here, Jesus and Satan battling it out. And with a couple of decisive victories, one or the other will win the war. Oh no. Our text says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, the head of the church, will not lose a single member of his church. Why? Well, apparently it is the will of the Father. We see in John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40, Jesus again uh, speaking to them. Uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has give, he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I would ask you this morning, are you in His church? Are you? In his, I'm not talking about this building right now, but I'm talking about are you in his church that we've been talking about here? Have you looked on the Son and believed in him? Do you have eternal life? If not, by his authority, I invite you, yes, I implore you to do so. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 25 tells us, for he must reign, that is, reign in his kingdom, his church, until he has put all things under his feet. Indeed, it is a certainty Jesus Christ will build his church. But there is a second certainty. And this one is implied, but it is clear. There will be satanic opposition. Our text says, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is interesting language. And it has been occasion for much discussion. The term prevail implies there is a struggle. It means to overpower, to get the upper hand. Well, to get a better feel for our Lord's words here in its context, let's consider the historical context. What's going on right now? The time of this scene was about the middle of the last year of our Lord's uh, public ministry. Um, it, uh, it, it was generally, uh, a, yeah, it was generally a, a time of opposition rather than his previous um, public popularity. Okay? His 12 disciples, his apostles, were now considerably advanced in their training. His teaching and mighty works were now well known throughout all Galilee and Judea. And he had pronounced his woes against the Galilean cities because of their rejection of his ministry. Hear the chilling words of Matthew eleven twenty through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon. Sidon, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Yeah, let that sink in. John the Baptist had been beheaded after a long imprisonment. Jesus' great discourse on the bread of life at Capernaum had resulted in his abandonment by many of his disciples. We read about that in John chapter 6, verse 66, where the text tells us at the end of that discourse uh, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Signs of an open collision with the religious leaders in Israel had been multiplying and growing more and more ominous. 
the Pharisees had unitedly taken counsel against him that they might destroy him. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were openly argumentative with him, following him around, trying to pick fights with him, if you will. His disciples, his disciples privately came to him alarmed. And all of this was on our Lord's mind when he spoke these great words in our text. His teaching, the text tells us, his teaching changed from then on, according to verse 21. Verse 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, Christ knew by experience the hostility of the world to the truth. The opposition to the church throughout history and presently has not taken our Lord by surprise. Knowing fully the opposition and knowing its satanic source, he declares that the very gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. But opposition is a certainty. Well, then let us consider how these two certainties work themselves out. Our Lord uses a most interesting word picture here. He says, the gates of hell. That is most interesting. We have often heard uh, this passage explained that the gates of hell are defensive as gates around the Middle Eastern cities were. And they will not be able to stop the onslaught of our Lord's church as our Lord's people attack Satan's worldly domain to take captives many souls as Christ builds his church and expands his kingdom and redeems the world. And that is right. That is true. That is what the soldiers in the king's army, the elect and redeemed members of his church, are doing or should be doing. Those gates will not stop the advancement of Christ's kingdom through his church. However, that is not a complete appreciation of what our Lord is teaching here. You see, the gates are not only designed to keep enemies out, they are also the avenue of egress. That is, that which is inside the enclosure exits through the gates. And, and uh, what would, this, the picture, and what would come out of hell would be evil, treacherous, diabolical. Picture all the evil schemes of Satan emerging through the gates of hell. The picture here is offensive as well as defensive. Christ the king is building his church, but Satan and his demonic hosts are offensively counterattacking. You see, Satan will not easily give up ground in this cosmic warfare, and certainly not passively. Why do I say this? Well, first of all, the definition of the word prevail does not justify the meaning defend. It means to overcome, to get the upper hand. It is aggressive in nature rather than passive, even in a defensive posture. But furthermore, this is a picture of an eastern city complete with mighty walls. The gate was the place where the city fathers and leaders would meet together and hold counsel and make important decisions. This was where the leadership would plan strategies and make policies. Remember the passage in Proverbs 31 where the virtuous woman's husband was known in the gates when he sat among the elders of the land? He wasn't sitting there being lazy. He was involved with the critical leadership of the city. That is our picture here. And this 
is the gates of hell. That is Hades, the realm of the dead. Let me quote M.R. Vincent. The expression gates of Hades is an orientalism for the court, throne, power, and dignity of the infernal kingdom. Hades is contemplated as a mighty city with formidable frowning portals, end quote. It is the capital city in the kingdom of darkness, the evil empire. Picture a council of policymakers, strategists, the satanic brain trust, scheming and planning how they will conquer and destroy our Lord's church, even as the church attacks the gates of hell. Matthew Henry describes it this way. The gates of hell are the powers and policies of the devil's kingdom, the dragon's head and horns by which he makes war with the lamb and all that comes out of hell gates as being hatched and contrived there, end quote. Well, the Bible describes Satan's techniques. We need to be aware. So look at 2 Corinthians 2.11. Paul says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You see, we know his rage. 1 Peter 5.8 describes him as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. History is full of accounts of the world's violence and cruelty against the church. When you study church history, you have to be moved with wonder at the expression of vitriol, which has always been directed against the true church and the saints who make up the body of Christ and seek to honor the king and live in accordance with his righteous law. We see this. Sometimes it, it, it boggles my mind that of all the peaceful people in the world, the Christians... The church have been some of the most gracious and peaceful in the history of the world. Not always, but the true believers are. Why does the world so hate the church? Well, because we know the source, don't we? The source hates the Christ of the church, and hence he hates the church. It's very clear. Of course, Christians are by no means the only group who are impacted by the hatred which is spawned by the malicious schemes of the prince of darkness. Such are the consequences of the fall. But the church is and always has been the special target of Satan's wrath. Oh, we know his rage. We also know his craft. Second Corinthians uh, 11, 14 says Satan is transformed into an angel of light. Paul writes, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He presents his way as lovely or clever or reasonable and fun. And he even promises remarkably uh, uh, sometimes the high moral ground, calling good evil and evil good. And he is the author of many heresies and leads, to, he leads into apostasy. First Timothy chapter four, verses one through three tells us, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe 
and know the truth. Ah, Satan inspires seducers of all sorts. 2 Corinthians 11.15 tells us, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And last week's sermon, Matthew preached on what the Apostle Paul, speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus in his farewell exhortations, had to say in Acts 20. But considering our focus this morning, let's look again at verses 28 through 30. Paul writes, Pay careful attention to yourselves, speaking to the elders. So, elders, take special note. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Hmm. The craft of Satan. Matthew Henry in commentary regarding the violence against Christ's church from the gates of hell goes on to say, These fight against the church by opposing gospel truths corrupting gospel ordinances, persecuting good ministers and good Christians, drawing or driving, persuading by craft or forcing by cruelty to that which is inconsistent with the purity of religion. This is the design of the gates of hell, to root out the name of Christianity, to devour the man-child, to raise his city to the ground. End quote. The great Puritan, John Owen, reminds us that sometimes Satan's rage against the church is part of his craft against the church in order to cast the church from her foundation. Now that brings us to the question, what is the foundation of the church? So before we go on to ponder the rest of this glorious declaration, it is worth taking a moment to clarify, or as Ryle said, comment briefly on what has strangely been controversial within Christendom historically. That is, what is the foundation of the church? And the context tells us. But for a moment, we must move to the verses preceding our focal text. So let's go back to verse 13. Look again. Take another look where we read, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Uh, notice, by the way, that none of them were saying that he was the Messiah. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, blessed Simon Peter. He replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon uh, uh, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, now listen here, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, what rock? Our Lord is using a little play on words here. Since Peter, Petros, means stone, as does the Hebrew form of the name Cephas, our Lord is referring to Petrus's confessional statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and it is upon this rock, this foundation, 
In other words, our Lord is saying it is upon himself. He is saying that he is the foundation and he will build his church. This is really the key to the whole matter. And this is what Satan rages against. There is, uh, this is what the gates of hell seek to destroy. For you see, without Christ, there is no church. Dear friends, I would suggest to you, and it seems Owen and others of the Puritans would agree, that although the church through the ages has faced many persecutions and much violence, physical and psychological, economic and political, the greatest danger has been and still is heresy. Wrong teaching is very dangerous. And wrong teaching, uncorrected, can, can and sometimes does lead to heresy. And heresy is the greatest danger facing the church, for heresy has eternal consequences. Persecution is by no means pleasant, but heresy is damning. Yet the fact remains, the gates of hell shall not prevail, neither in the individual lives of the saints nor in the church at large. Nor will the kingdom of darkness be able to finally frustrate the militant march of the Christ church. I love the lyrics to that great hymn by Samuel J. Stone. We're going to sing it in just a few minutes, but let me read the lyrics to you and, and we will prepare as we get to sing it in, together in just a few minutes. Listen to these words. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, and false sons in her pale, against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet, she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Oh, happy ones and holy. Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly on high, will dwell with thee. Well, quickly then, what are some of the implications for us? Certainly, these seem to be difficult times for us, and not just for us, but for the church around the globe. It cannot be denied that our homeland is, gro is uh, growing morally more and more corrupt. These are unhappy days for our land, and that does not bode peaceful for the church of Jesus in America. 
Furthermore, there is much confusion in the church today, even among some evangelical churches, are letting secular cultural conflicts impact the worldview and practices of their congregations. Sadly, even some of those churches, which we think are trying to teach the purest doctrines of the Bible, seem to be abandoning their historical and creedal understanding of scriptures and consequently are full of troubles. Many churches, unlike this church, have so few serious and committed members, it is becoming increasingly difficult to continue existence. It is a great temptation today to grow discouraged nigh unto despondency. But this message is intended to encourage us. So let, us, let me briefly make six hopefully encouraging applications. Pray. Pray that Christ would continue to build his church here and expand a visible expression of it here. Pray that he would build it. I know that you are praying this way. In fact, I think the loss of our beloved Pastor John has shocked us all into the realization that it must be Jesus Christ himself who shall build his church. Not any pastor, nor a deacon, nor you. We must all be active and busy, but our Lord must build the church. This means that we must maintain purity and not compromise the integrity of the church. Don't despise what God is doing if the church remains pure. He will build this, His church. Secondly, pray that God would increasingly use this local church to further the spread of the gospel and the growth of his church around the world. Think, think, think of and pray for ways you, the members of Pacific Hope, can impact the lives and cultures uh, of precious people from assisting fellow believers in local churches, which are not as richly blessed as this church, to boldly evangelizing the lost souls in this community and across the globe. Third, don't be surprised at the opposition and the trials. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Fourth, resist the devil, being firm in the faith. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Five, don't give up. Elders, don't give up. <laughs> Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. You see, Pacific Hope, you are his church. Don't give up. Even though the circumstances which reflect either the extreme hatred of the evil one or simply the effects of what it means to be a beacon of light in a dark and fallen world seem to compound and mount up against you. Don't give up. 
You belong to Jesus. You, Pacific Hope, corporately belong to your head, the Lord Jesus. He loves you, and He will build His church. And the return on your faithfulness and perseverance will be His eternal blessing, victorious delight, and glory. Christ remains in the business of redemption. And the church is his army conquering the forces of evil, the gates of hell, and we, his people. We, his people, are the, uh, uh, are the soldiers in this ongoing campaign which will result in certain victory for the cause of Christ, brethren, don't give up. And lastly, finally, make certain you are in the church, not behind the walls of the gates of hell. Don't be subtly sucked into the ways of the kingdom of darkness. Don't let the clarion call of humanistic psychology or materialistic worldview cause you to shipwreck your soul. Talk about being on the wrong side of history. Make certain. Someday, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To those in the church, this causes great bliss. But for the citizens of the kingdom of darkness, this will be terror and horror and the prelude to everlasting torment. Be certain, my dear friends, that Jesus Christ, the Lord, will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world to redeem his church. And we praise you and honor you and glory in you that you have called us to be a part of that church. And you have established this local body to be an expression, a visible expression of your church throughout the world. Oh, Lord, keep this church pure. Keep us on the path. May we persevere in your truth and may you bless Pacific Hope Church now and in the days ahead that indeed this light would grow brighter and brighter in this community of darkness. And, O oh Lord, no matter what comes, may we continue to bow the knee in, in delight and glory unto the Messiah, the King of Kings, our Savior. We look forward to the consummation of all of this when we will glory in you for eternity. Help us then, Father, as we move forward to remember these Precious words from our, from our Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke these many, many, many years ago, and yet resonate with us even today on this very day. Thank you, Father. We praise you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.